Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. I watch CNBC and I read the Wall Street Journal, and I want to be careful how I say this, but at the end of the day, really, it's not black magic. I really believe this, that people are smart enough to understand and figure out investing with the right tools and the right applications. In this episode, we're speaking with Doug Sifu, founder and CEO of Virtue. Doug was a lawyer for over two decades before turning his gaze to finance. Virtue is a market maker, an important player in how our markets work. Market makers and their relationships with brokerages like Robinhood have been the subject of criticism, controversy, and confusion. So I wanted to speak with Doug and really get into the weeds about how market making really works, address some of the misconceptions head on, and discuss how new technologies are transforming the financial industry, both market making and more broadly. So this is gonna be a very deep conversation. We're excited to have Doug on board. Why don't we start at the basics? Doug, what is Virtue? Sure, great question. So. Uh... My partner and I started Virtu in 2008, and the idea was that historically there's always been these entities called market makers or financial intermediaries, and the role of the market maker historically, and this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, was to be effectively the financial intermediary or the middleman that was doing the hard work of trying to connect natural buyers and natural sellers. Really what a market maker is doing is solving for, I'll sound fancy for a second, the temporal dissonance between, and sometimes even the quantitative differences between natural buyers and natural sellers. So we're acting as a bridge in a marketplace to make sure that markets function in a smooth, dynamic way. Historically, that was done in trading pits with a bunch of largely white males yelling at each other, making hand signals. Vinny was smart enough, right, because he was not a technologist, but embraced technology and automation. He was smart enough to realize that if you apply technology and automation to that very, very necessary financial intermediation process, you could build a very large, scaled, fully automated electronic market-making firm. And so that was the premise, the DNA behind what Virtu Financial was all about. And the idea was to be agnostic as to asset classes. So we're a market maker across 25,000 different financial instruments in every conceivable asset class in 50 different countries, because at the end of the day, whether it's a security, whether it's a future, whether it's an FX forward or a swap, it doesn't matter to us. Those are just widgets. As long as we have enough reliable information, i.e. market data, and we understand the rule sets of the marketplaces we're in, we think there's always going to be a bid and offer. In other words, the difference between a, what a willing buyer and a willing seller are prepared to pay for a quantum of a financial instrument. And we're going to be the company that's going to try to provide the tightest and the best bid and offer in every marketplace. And we get compensated, we get paid by collecting that difference, right? That bid offer spread, which we hope is, is attractive to the end users. And so we're trying to bring an attractive two-sided price effectively to marketplaces. So that's a Virtu kind of in a nutshell. If you go back historically, you know, market making existed way before technology, right? Yeah, I mean, the first market maker was Farmer Jones in Kansas or wherever it was in Bulgaria, I mean, where you grew up, right? He had too much corn, wheat, sugar, cocoa, cotton, 
cows, pigs, whatever it was. He brought it to like the town center and eventually people figured out, okay, these guys are bringing their goods to this town center and there was a post in the middle of the town and there were dudes that hung around the post and said, okay, I'll buy from you because I think I can sell it to somebody else. That was the first market maker. Yeah. So this is a profession, if you will, and a necessary function that frankly goes back hundreds of years. That's why, you know, the New York Stock Exchange was formed underneath the Buttonwood tree because there were people like literally sat out in the open and traded things and there were folks that didn't necessarily have a notional view on things, but were there to kind of make the system work. And is a market maker different from just a trader? Like, was Marco Polo, could you argue Marco Polo was a market maker? Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. People put way too much credence behind these labels, like HFT, market maker, electronic this, speculating, trading, investing. At the end of the day, right, there's this marketplace, and people have different views as to like how long they want to own something or hold something. So sure, we're a trading firm in the sense that we're buying something, but our view of holding it is hopefully measured in microseconds or milliseconds or seconds, minutes, and sometimes, unfortunately, hours. And there are other folks that want to hold things for days and others that want to hold it for years. So at the end of the day, we're all involved in this ecosystem, effectively trying to make very good educated guesses or bets, if you will, based on the information available to us. And we all have different kind of temporal views as to how long we want to hold that guess for. We're going to trade a lot more volume and be less concerned about what we're buying and selling because our view of the world in terms of how long we want to hold that asset, as I said, is measured in hopefully microseconds or milliseconds. When you guys started Virtue, you and Vinny, were you high frequency from the start? Yeah, so the DNA of the firm has always been full automation, and as low a latency as we needed to be in order for us to be impactful. So we never viewed speed and latency offensively. We're not a firm that was trying to like arb a quote because we saw that a price changed in Chicago, so let's get to New York really fast and try to like remove liquidity. So we built a low latency architecture because we are proffering, we're posting always bids and offers to the marketplace. And when there's obviously interconnection within the equities market, but certainly within the futures markets and now globally. And so as prices would change, we had to be low latent, if you will, in order to reprice an asset so that we wouldn't be picked off. Yeah, I've always said Virtu is really not a trading firm, frankly. It's really a financial technology firm. Our traders are folks like you that have PhDs in mathematics and physics and applied chemistry and things along those lines. I don't hire folks from hedge funds, or even from Wall Street that think that they can trade and understand the market and whatnot. It's really about understanding micro market structure and building an infrastructure that was robust and scalable and reliant. And can you give me a sense for how high frequency has evolved from when you started till now? What was high frequency back then? It's a great question. I mean, I'm a liberal arts guy, right? I'm a lawyer. Yeah. So I, I, to be really blunt with you, I didn't know what the hell a nanosecond was yeah. in 2008. Okay, you probably did. When we started Virtu, yeah, sure, I kind of figured out what a millisecond was. And you went from like New York to Chicago. I think the original was like 15.9 milliseconds. And then all of a sudden, there was this race, which I kind of equate almost to like the... U.S. and the Soviets arms race in like the 60s, 70s and 80s. It was sort of pointless. 
but a lot of money was spent to dig through mountains and to do things along those lines and build these wireless infrastructures so that people could be lower latent and then things started to be measured in microseconds and in many marketplaces now you do need certainly you need nanosecond resolution to understand if that's the reason why you're having issues right are we losing money because we are getting picked off so we need to have gear that is sensitive enough to measure nanosecond or for sure microsecond resolution of things it's that level of precision so the firm we were built as a market making firm that was providing we thought a service initially to the market because we didn't have customers initially until we bought night capital and now we're providing that service to our clients like you guys and to literally thousands of other retail brokers and institutional firms all around the world. Yeah, it's just interesting to me to watch the evolution of all the entities and the consolidation in the space. Getco, back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, Getco was like the dominant player in algorithmic trading. They spun off Getco execution services. Then there was the merger with Knight. Virtue started out in LA, I believe, right? You guys were, uh, was it EWT? Yeah, so uh, EWT was East West Trading, which is actually still our broker deal. It's been renamed about 14 times. But yeah, so Vinny was chairman of the New York Mercantile Exchange. He didn't want to start his first trading firm in New York. He kind of wanted to get away from New York. And so he had a partner and they started actually in Beverly Hills. I got involved with him as a lawyer. You know, he and his partner kind of went separate ways. And his idea was, hey, let's redo the, the same concept in New York and call it Virtu. And that's what we started. We then in 2011 bought the Madison Tyler firm. That was the first combination. And you're right. Getgo was like our, they were like the 800 pound gorilla. They had like a first mover advantage. And I think there's a lesson in what happened to them because we now own them. Knight merged with Getgo. So ironically, Virtu now is a combination of obviously legacy Virtu, Madison Tyler, Getgo, Knight, and the firm ITG we bought. So we've kind of combined these five businesses. Yeah. I remember back when I was in New York, it was kind of like the gold rush when it came to algorithmic trading and high frequency. And you mentioned the word get go and it sent shutters down the spines of all of these algorithmic trading firms. Yeah, exactly. Because they were just afraid get go would, would enter their space. Let's talk a little bit about Flash Boys. From my perspective, I think that Flash Boys, the publication of, of that book by Michael Lewis, I think 2014, yeah. changed the public discourse around algorithmic trading. I'd say prior to publication of Flash Boys, it was viewed as just this innovative technology applied to trading. And another example almost of, of how America was pushing forward the status quo with new technology and trading infrastructure. And then afterward, there was this just like different air about it of controversy. So I was reading the book, obviously, with some experience in the space myself. And I think one of the things that really surprised me was if you really look at what's written, even Michael Lewis himself will probably agree that high frequency trading is a story of the old banks that didn't have the technology and the resources to compete being disrupted by a lot of these smaller, scrappier upstarts. Exactly. And so if you look at the David versus the Goliath aspect of it, he made the old gigantic banks and the wirehouses feel like David and these new innovative firms such as Virtue and its predecessors as the Goliaths and somehow made you think that the entire financial industry was part of 
some evil plot and the end customers were somehow suffering from this. I mean, there's a lot of analogies to the situation we're going through, you know, that you all and we all are going through with respect to wholesaling and payment for order flow. Because if you think about, I don't want to, you know, you're asking the questions and here I am leading you to the next topic. But I think it's a brilliant, brilliant segue and analogy because that's exactly kind of what has happened here. And this is why I got so damn frustrated with like Andrew Ross Sorkin and, and the critics of quote unquote payment for order flow. At the end of the day, you should be celebrating the innovation that folks like Robinhood and others have brought to the marketplace in collaboration, for lack of a better word, with Virtu and Citadel and Susquehanna and all the other market-making firms, which is we've brought this efficiency to the point, to the tip of the spear so much that now retail investors can, for zero dollars, access a price that is at or better than what is available on an exchange to an institutional investor. Just stop the conversation right there in size as well. So up to 9,999 shares that we get jammed on all the time, right? So if you think about an ecosystem where technology, innovation, and hard work has created such a system where with zero friction costs, an individual can pick up a smartphone, push a little button on his application, and get filled on a 1,000 shares of Tesla for nothing at a price better than some large asset manager can, where's the criticism? Yeah. And I don't understand. I mean, that's the point that I've made. I'm a lot older than you. When I was your age, if I wanted to go buy, Tesla didn't exist, 100 shares of GM, I had to call my wife's cousin, Bernie, that's his name, right, who ran the Morgan Stanley office in Ridgewood, and Bernie would give me the family rate. It was $300 Oof. to buy 100 shares. What a time to be alive. Right, exactly. You and I would be, uh, you know, uh, doing something else right now because we'd made so much money from brokerage commission. So like all of that cost has been extracted from the system because of innovation, because of really hard work by the market makers. And frankly, I'll give you all the credit in the world because you were smart enough to realize that you could offer this zero commission service to retail investors and you really changed the industry. Well, you know, I'm sure you've seen that Robinhood has really tried to engage with this topic publicly and not just with Congress, but we're writing blog posts. We're doing a lot on social media, trying to educate people about payment for order flow. And I've always said, and I'll say now that if there's a better way to do things, I'm going to be the first one to embrace that. But looking at the analysis, there's so much bunk and so many misconceptions that I think we just have to kind of wade through that and figure out that once everyone, let's say everyone understands or the people that are engaging in the conversation understand kind of the parameters, what's left and maybe there will be something left and, and maybe not. Yeah, here's the thing that I always hang my hat on. Frankly, the folks at the SEC and FINRA that have looked at this over the last 30 years, they have come to the conclusion that ultimately the data doesn't lie. It supports the proposition that giving retail brokers and then ultimately their end users the choice, the choice of sending orders to an exchange, to an ATS, or to a wholesaler is a healthy dynamic, right? You all have that choice as a retail broker, as do all of your competitors. That's a good, healthy dynamic. In addition, they have concluded that there is a value that there are a handful of firms like Virtu, Citadel, Susquehanna, the market makers, can extract from a large basket of largely small non-correlated orders. Call that the bid-offer spread, right? We're not taking something of value from the retail investor, right? The retail investor isn't thinking, okay, well, Tesla's 9-bid at 10. 
maybe I could buy it for nine spot nine nine because I'm a market maker and I'm going to flip it 87 microseconds later, right? They're not competing with Virtu and Citadel. They're happy to buy Tesla at 10. And if you sell it to them just a little bit cheaper, they'd probably even be happier. So that value, let's call that the bid offer spread, your genius was that you were like, hey, these guys are making money from these orders. I'm going to enter into a partnership to revenue share that. That's what Virtu, Citadel, and the other market makers are doing with Robinhood and with the other firms that accept payment for order flows. Nothing more than that. You're not taking anything out of your clients' pockets, right? It's something that we can extract because of all the hard work we've done as a market maker. And what you're saying to us is as a commercial matter, hey, Doug, we're going to route orders to you. And in order for us to facilitate the receipt of those orders, it costs us money to run Robinhood, we'd ask you to revenue share that with us. And that's what we do. Absolutely. Well, let me hit you with some of the misconceptions that I'm hearing and see how you would respond. Number one, selling data. I think a lot of people conflate this with social media and and advertising and data. Yeah, we get 100%, like literally millions of anonymous orders from you and from 199 other, from wealth managers, uh, retail brokers. We have no clue who's behind what order, and it's completely irrelevant to us. We trade it as like a big portfolio. If anything, the information asymmetry runs the other way. It's really professional trading firms that come through a retail broker, and they may have orders that are correlated with the marketplace. We're the market maker. We don't have an earthly clue if we're getting 1,000 shares of Tesla, that there's another 10,000 shares behind that, then maybe we're going to move the market. Yeah. Okay, so now front-running trades, this is one that I think appeared in Flash Boys and you hear it a lot. What do you say to the allegation that market makers front-run trades and that's how they make their money? Yeah, okay. I will be a little more uh, CEO-like and say it is categorically incorrect. How can we front-run an order when it comes to us and as soon as it hits our environment, you're done. Whatever the NBBO is at that moment in time, you're getting that price or better. Right. And you guys have really smart guys at Robinhood that monitor that because you want to make sure you're satisfying your best execution obligations. And we do the exact same thing. And we get surveilled and examined by FINRA and the SEC constantly on this, constantly. So categorically, it does not happen. So some have noticed, I think this happened in December, there was a little bit of a flippening in terms of what percentage of the total market volume gets executed off exchange versus on exchange. So the questions that arise from that are, is it bad for markets and the integrity of markets for a large percentage to be off exchange? And should we be trying to evolve to a system where the vast majority of orders are executed on exchange on a lit venue? Yeah, I don't see any reason why. I mean, first, If you take a step back and actually look at the data, one of the few things European market structure does better than U.S. is like things are done in notional as opposed to per share. So you have conflation of the data because you have a number of like low price names. Like there's a stock SNDL that traded 3 billion shares one day. Okay, that is a darling of a lot of retail investors. It's some kind of pot company. I don't know what the hell they do. It's like a dollar 50 stock, a dollar 20 stock. When it trades 3 billion shares, a lot of that gets sent to wholesalers, and so the data is wildly skewed. So you got to really look at, like, you got to dig within the data. If you look at per notional, people say, oh, my God, it hit 47 48% was done off an exchange, right? A lot of that's in an ATS. Some of that is big bank blocks, and the rest is retail. But if you look at notional, it never really got larger than, like, 41%. 
right? So the vast preponderance of dollars are still going to an exchange. That's the first thing. The second thing is this notion that somehow there's this magic number that, oh my God, at 50.1%, it really tips the other way and price discovery is somehow irrevocably damaged because transactions happen off of an exchange. There's just no real evidence for that. A couple people put out papers and say, well, it's harder for an institutional investor to execute in some of these low price names because they don't generally trade in those names. They're generally spending their time in the Russell 3000. The other point I'll make is that every time you all send us a market order and we execute it, we immediately print that to the tape, right? So it's all out there. So transparency-wise, there's no difference? There's 100% transparency. We're trying to act as like effectively a place where institutional and retail clients can meet, and we're providing that service. So during the House Financial Services Committee, the one that I was a part of, Ken Griffin suggested something interesting. He said that exchanges in the current environment actually are unable to compete on execution quality with market makers because they're prevented from quoting in sub-penny increments. What do you think about that? Do you think that that's something that should be changed to make exchanges more competitive? Ken's a much smarter guy than I am, so when he generally says something, I typically agree with it because he's thought a lot more about it than I have. I don't have any problem with it because ultimately what we're providing to the retail firms that we do business with is a service. We're providing not only price improvement, we're providing guaranteed execution. And when we screw up, if our market data is off, we'll adjust prices or if God forbid we have an outage, we make good on that. So there's a real value to you guys to knowing that you're sending orders to a market center. And there are these retail liquidity provider programs on the exchanges CBOE has one. The New York Stock Exchange has one. I think NASDAQ had, they're all different names and I can't remember the acronyms. And we participate in all of those. And we send non-marketable limit orders to exchanges all the time. So like, as far as I'm concerned, I don't view the exchanges as like our competitors. We do a lot of business with them and we're one of their biggest customers. So if that helps them feel like they're more competitive for retail orders, then sure, I don't mind. It doesn't bother me at all. Do I think it's going to change the way that you all and all of your competitors really do business? No, I don't. I think at the end of the day, there's a lot more value, if you will, that the wholesaler can provide that an exchange, frankly, can't provide. Because again, why can we provide that price improvement and the payment for order flow back to the retail broker and to your clients? Because flow is being segmented and we have an opportunity to interact with it. If it's on an exchange and it's totally visible and we have to have our indications all publicly available, what are we naturally going to do? We don't want to be negatively selected, so we're going to proffer less liquidity and we're going to widen out. That's the thing that the critics don't get. The reason this ecosystem works is because of flow segmentation. And we're able to provide that price improvement back because you have confidence in us that we're going to provide your clients with that good execution and you're segmenting that order flow for us. Yeah, no, that, that's very interesting. On a slightly different note, Virtue is, I think, the only market maker that's publicly traded right now. Why do you think there aren't more market makers that are publicly traded? Nobody has as much of an ego and is as crazy as I am, I guess, is probably maybe the, one of the first answers. So uh, if you're thinking about going public, give me a call. It's not that much fun, four times a year at least, and sometimes more. I think uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, the more serious answer is, Look, it's not exactly the apropos of the conversations we're having. When the business model is featured on TV and people are like questioning 
the sanctity of the business model, that doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion we should go public. We did it for a couple of reasons. One, we were very proud of what we had created and we thought it made sense and we wanted to kind of put a stake in the ground. Two, we wanted a currency for acquisitions and we've made two multi-billion dollar acquisitions, right? So it enabled us to do that. I think, you know, a lot of these other trading firms are sometimes a little bit of cult of personality around an individual and they kind of enjoy that and they obviously throw off a lot of cash and all that kind of stuff and they don't want to expose what they do to the spotlight of being a public company. I actually took the opposite tact, maybe because I used to be an M&A securities lawyer, which was I actually thought it would be a good thing for our business because it would sort of take us out of the shadow. And I had this notion that we wanted to have customer interactions. And so I thought it would be more comforting to customers to see that we were, hey, we got nothing to hide. In fact, we're very proud of what we created and we're happy to undergo the scrutiny of being a public company. I think at some point, someone else will be crazy enough to uh, do what we do. I hope it would be good for us because it's nice to have peers that are kind of comps. Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting. So let me close with one question. Robinhood's mission, as you might know, is democratizing finance for all. One thing I'd like to ask all my guests is, what does that mean to you? I think you'd have a very interesting perspective in particular, but when you hear democratizing finance for all, what does it mean to you? You know what it really means to me, and I love it, and I thank you for doing this because I think it's really bold of you guys to do this and put yourself out there. And I I watch CNBC and I read the Wall Street Journal, and I want to be careful how I say this, but at the end of the day, really, it's not black magic. Investing and understanding markets and making a decision that, hey, I want to invest in something because it's going to create a wealth event or it's going to help me pay for college for my kids or to do this... That is something that shouldn't be behind the curtain of a $300 broker, a $500 broker, or some wealth manager. I really believe this, that people are smart enough to understand and figure out investing with the right tools and the right applications. So the fact that you have made it more accessible and, frankly, cost-effective and frictionless, to me, is fantastic. So really what it means is that Mr. and Mrs. 401k don't have to pay all of the egregious fees that come with a 401k. There's obviously some tax advantages. They can do investing and trading on their own. To me, that's a wonderful mission. And I think you guys have done a great job in creating that ecosystem. And now there are a lot of other companies that are doing the same kind of thing. And I think that's ultimately a good thing because it's all about providing that opportunity ultimately to millions and millions of not just Americans, but millions and millions of people that can, frankly, it can change lives. No, I I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of people ask me when all of our major competitors replicated our business, whether that was like horrible for us or a positive thing or how I felt about it. And the way I said it is, if we think about what our mission is to democratize finance for all, it's not enough for us to just remove the fees and commissions from our own customers, but we have to obliterate it industry-wide. And I think... The more time passes, obviously, I was a little bit surprised and nervous at the time, but the more I kind of recognized that was an awesome thing. And I think the next step is really transparency. And you know, I appreciate what you said about us putting ourselves out there. We appreciate you putting yourself out there as a market maker because a lot of market makers don't really do marketing, right? They're not out there talking about what they're doing. And I think with the way social media is operating, I think people just crave that transparency. 
And if you don't have the transparency, you see these conspiracy theories popping out everywhere. And you'd either be transparent or spend your time just squashing all of these things. So I think we'd definitely like to play our part in increasing the transparency of our own business and the broader financial industry. So hopefully this helps. And I think it'll lead to really interesting conversations that spring out of this. Amen. Couldn't agree with you more. Cool. Well, thanks so much for your time, Doug. And uh, I'd love to do this again sometime soon. Anytime you want. I appreciate it. And thank you for, uh, for making this available. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and not a recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk and loss of principle is possible. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker dealer. Robinhood Securities LLC member SIPC provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto LLC provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets Inc., which is also the distributor of this podcast.